Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about the de novo process and how you navigate that when you decide to go that way. And the person we're talking with that about today is Rob McCuspie. He's the manager of regulatory affairs at Proxima Clinical Research, where he oversees high quality regulatory submissions to the FDA, other regulatory agencies as well, um, including Q-sub requests, 510K submissions, de novo classification requests, pre-market approval applications, breakthrough device designation applications, IDE, IND applications. He's kind of done it all. Um, He has a lot of knowledge in this area, and uh, he's very passionate about getting products to market in a safe and effective as well as efficient way. So I think you can learn a lot from this episode. So stay tuned for the rest. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, your co-host for the podcast. Well, today I'm actually the, the host. We don't have John Spear with us today. He's off saving the world in a different way. So, But with me today, I'm really excited to have Rob McCuspie from Proxima Clinical Research. Rob has a lot of background in regulatory affairs and helping companies bring devices to market. I'll let you speak to your experience. You probably do a better job than I can, Rob. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Etienne, and really excited to be here. Yeah, so I kind of have a, an interesting career path. I started out as a PhD bench chemist in the National Lab System at NIST and Got the idea of science and business at that intersection. Got to do a brief stint in academia at a startup university and then transitioned into industry and was in the natural products uh, space and helping companies launch their first class two medical devices, getting to do product education, product development, director of labs. So got experience with quality management systems and the importance there and building things. And then got a chance to go to a couple of startups and help them launch some products and really got that itch. And been here at Proxima Clinical Research for over a year now as the uh, regulatory affairs manager, or coming up on a year actually. And uh, it's going by quick and just loving it because uh, we get to help lots of folks and lots of interesting technologies and get to use uh, Greenlight Guru to help folks improve their quality management system as part of that. So it's really a fun space and glad to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to get to talk to you today. The topic that we kind of have on the, the docket is uh, de novo. So one of the questions that I had, you know, if I, I'm just, I try to approach this kind of with a beginner's mindset, I might have certain assumptions in my mind, but I'll try to put those out. What does de novo even mean to the medical device world? Yeah. So I don't know about the actual translation of the word, but to me, it just means something new and something innovative. And so I like to think of it as, okay, if if you've got this new idea and you you sketched it out on the whiteboard, so we've figured out now it's not going to be a class three medical device. It's not going to require a PMA because it's not that high risk to safety. Um, But we've looked around and you know, it's really innovative. So we're trying to go maybe see if the 510K pathways and options, is there a substantial equivalent predicate device, but we just really can't find anything that's really substantially equivalent. This is just so new, so innovative, so cool. There's nothing else like that out there. And so to me, that's when the de novo pathway might be the right choice for bringing this to market. How often does that actually come to fruition in your mind? I mean, maybe I should ask a question before I ask that question, which is, what does the process actually look like for a person who has that idea? Is it truly vetted where it truly is a de novo product? 
Yeah, so there's there's a couple of ways people can arrive at the decision. You can kind of do the analysis for yourself and try to like go straight to the de novo submission pathway. Or sometimes people may try to do a pre-submission meeting and, and get the opinions of FDA. Sometimes they might go the 510K pathway and FDA just says, nope, it's not substantial equivalent. You have to go de novo. That happens pretty rarely now. In history, that was the only way you could enter it. So it's a little more efficient to go straight to de novo. But it's actually not nearly as common as the 510K pathway. When we do our searches for substantial equivalent predicate devices, you could use something that was a de novo at one point in time. So we searched the de novo approval database. We searched the 510K database, and there's a lot more predicates there to look at. So it's it's not used as often. I mean, a lot of um, submissions, people are maybe expanding an existing technology or you know coming up with a new, different way to do the same indication. So it might be suitable for the 510K pathway. So you know, just the rate of innovation compared to incremental seems to be you know not quite as often, but uh, it's it's a fun opportunity when you get to work on those projects. Yeah. Okay. Do you have some examples of, uh, or, or maybe what are some examples of devices that I might be familiar with that that were de novo? I don't know that I have a ton of examples off the top of my head, but typically what I think of is, you know, is this something that is really, truly innovative? It's almost like, you know, somebody's making a brand new left-handed widget, right? And it's never been created before. So it's just something that is really, really innovative. So, I, you know, if you think about, the insulin pump community. There's a lot of insulin pumps that are out there, but the very first insulin pump that came on the market when that was just a brand new technology, nobody else had ever had, that would have been going through the de novo pathway had that been there back when. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. If, if it was coming to market today, right? If it was something that new and innovative, you know, that's that's when we would look at the de novo. I can see some pros and cons of doing that, but I'm curious what your take is. So you know, if I'm blazing a trail, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, I would assume. And maybe we can get into what that extra work would be. You did mention, you know, knowing you're a lower risk device, maybe you don't have to do a class three submission, but how does that work? What's the pros and cons of going the de novo route? Yeah. So a lot of people look at the cons first and say, oh, well, I feel like I'm going to have to do all of this extra work and, you know, there's a higher submission fee. And so they get really hung up on, you know, some of those cons. But to me, the real opportunity with the de novo pathway is that you are getting a chance to really create a new product category, and you're going to be helping the FDA figure out how to regulate this product category for people that want to try to copy you in the future. So inevitably, there's going to be folks trying to have a V2 device or, or copy this new innovation, right? If, if it's that disruptive, people are going to want to do it. And so when when the FDA is reviewing a de novo application, they're thinking about, well, for the next product that comes along, what are the types of testing that we're going to want to see to make sure the next product is safe and effective, just like this one? And so in, in some ways, it's an opportunity to try to set the bar for market entry, if you will. You know, obviously, FDA is making those determinations, but with the special controls that a de novo submission selects, it's really guiding FDA to really think about, hey, everybody should be looking at these types of things. And as an innovator, right, typically folks know what that type of testing is for their product. So they're going to know, okay, hey, look, to convince ourselves this was working before we wanted to go to market, this is what we were doing. So, of course, we want everybody else to be doing at least that much, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is that kind of something that they do? Maybe they'll go above and beyond just to, to increase that barrier to entry or? 
Well, so, I mean, obviously you don't want to go too far above and beyond needlessly, right? So there's always that yeah. balance of, you know, like the least burdensome perspective, of, of course. So you want to always try to keep that in mind. But but it really is an opportunity to kind of, you know, be strategic and think about, okay, you know, in a 510K pathway, you know, maybe other devices didn't have this particular test that we feel as innovators should have been there, you know, maybe it wasn't common in the, in the type of setting, or maybe it's just really not needed in that type of setting, you know, but we would like to see that in this space, that gives you the chance to say, well, you know, we were going above and beyond. We'd like to see all the competition do that where the FDA may have been able to be convinced one way or the other. It gives you the opportunity to say, look, we really want to make sure that this whole space is held to a really high standard. And so obviously that protects the consumers, you know, the users, the patients, but it's also an opportunity to try to, you know, really build and strengthen the field. That makes a lot of sense. I guess in my mind, when I think about DeNovo, I would assume it's a tough submission because you are sort of blazing that trail. Is that accurate? And and if so, what, what makes it tough? To me, the tough part can be you have to help the FDA become familiar with this new technology, right? They want to understand, you know, how are they going to need to approach this so that it fits into the regulations. And so a lot of times we recommend doing a pre-submission meeting with the FDA so they have a chance to get familiar with the device. They'll get a chance to see the description and the intended use, you know, and there's usually a lot of questions that arise along the way about, well, you know, we think this might be sufficient, but we're just not 100% sure if FDA thinks this is a large enough sample size for our study or, you know, that these three endpoints are sufficient. We wouldn't need a fourth one in a, in a study, for example. And so it's, it's a great time to have those conversations and get the buy-in at an early stage in the design process and, and really understand what FDA's thinking will be about are there additional concerns that they may have that were unanticipated, right? So that's always the benefit of a pre-sub where they go in the 510 K pathway or the de novo pathway. Um, but it really is also a chance for FDA to learn and get familiar with the technology and the device. You know, maybe, maybe this is so new they're they're not familiar with it because they haven't seen anything like it yet. You know, they're experts in their field and in their domain, so they'll be able to grasp it quickly, but you want to make sure that that's being articulated well. So, you know, the pre-submission meeting is really a great opportunity to work together with FDA and make that process easier versus, I know some folks like to just go straight to a submission, you know, maybe it sounds appealing as a faster pathway, but sometimes you can get in there and find out, oh, they were, you know, thinking something a little differently than what we did. And now we've got, you know, we've got to kind of backtrack a little bit. So um, yeah, if they don't fully understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If they, if they don't even fully understand the device, um, I was talking to someone earlier today and they, they have started to recommend sending a device with with uh, to the FDA so they can hold it, look at it. I don't know if that's something you've seen or or experienced, but yeah. I, I haven't personally seen um, clients requesting that strategy yet. We've started to see folks with videos, you know, kind of doing that approach, you know, where you kind of get a chance to look at it and see it, you know, maybe in operation or something like that if it's particularly complex. So yeah, that's an interesting idea. You know, give them a give them a little show and tell. I mean, I guess that's something maybe people did back in the days when we traveled on site for those meetings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got, uh, yeah. Maybe those days will return. I don't know. Well, when I think about kind of what you're describing, one of the questions that pops up into mind is: Does it take longer to do a de novo? It feels like maybe there's a certain amount of risk management activities that need to take place to do it right, but does it take longer than, than maybe a 510K? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the review clock is longer for DeNovo. The regulations are 120 days, but there's a, with Madufa 4, there's a negotiation for 150 day clock. So, and that's a review clock that will pause, as we all know, when the FDA asks for additional information. So for all practical purposes, it could take, you know, up to a year in some cases, you know, depending on how long it takes to gather that data, how many rounds of back and forth. Um, again, that's where the precept meeting can come in maybe and, and help reduce a little bit of that time on the on the back end, um, make that process go a little bit smoother. So it does take a little bit longer uh, because, again, the FDA's perspective when they created the 510K pathway was, you know, this is something we're familiar with. We've seen products in this space before. So we kind of generally understand what we're going to ask for in the safety and efficacy. And we just have to look at, does that meet the requirements versus de novo is, okay, let's make sure we've got the requirements set for that next round of review for when this becomes a predicate device in the future. And so that requires a little bit of extra time and care and attention for them to do. So yeah, it does take a little bit longer um, in the process, but you know, to me, it's also, uh, it's, it's worth it to, to have that mark of, you know, being really innovative in the field. Yeah. Being the leader, being the first, that's, that's super cool. I imagine as a regulatory affairs professional, you're probably hit with a lot of different scenarios and you have to plan for every scenario. How do you go about doing that? Is it possible to, to even do that? Well, okay. So personally, I'm not sure I believe you. It is, it is humanly possible to plan for every single scenario. So I grew up in Florida. And so there you deal with hurricanes from time to time. So one year we had done all the preparations, you know, had all the bottled water and the batteries, you know, we're watching the storm go over our house and our apartment complex. And apparently the wind was driving the water so hard, it triggered one of the fire alarms in the hallway. So it's the middle of a hurricane and I'm like hearing a fire alarm going off and I've got these conflicting messages of like, okay, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, I'm supposed to stay inside. So like a tree doesn't fly by and hit me <laughs> or something, right. but the building's on fire and it's not safe to stay inside. So, okay. I had not thought this scenario through. What do I do here? So like, I cautiously was kind of like poking my head outside and this was after the winds were so high, the fire trucks weren't even supposed to be like responding but I saw a fire truck outside and the guys in the truck were just like waving me back inside, like, go back in. You're fine. Like, get back in. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I had not thought that through. What was I going to do? Right. Yeah. So I, I, so there, you know, I forget which general it was, forgive me, but you know, that plan is nothing. The planning is everything. Right. So you, you try to prepare for as much as you can anticipate and then just be ready to respond as best as you can, because you've thought it through and you have all of these, you know, okay, these are the types of scenarios. And then there's always going to be that unanticipated curveball that comes at some point and you're just like, all right, let's roll with it. This is what we got and we'll get through it. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I, I love that quote, by the way, too. That's really cool. Um, so Okay, well, maybe we'll look at it a different way because I agree. You know, it's hard to, and I think some medical device companies think they're planning for every scenario, and as a result, maybe it takes longer than it would have otherwise if the, if you just kind of take a realistic approach, a risk based approach, but still realistic. So that said, what would you say, and maybe maybe specific with DeNovo, what are some pitfalls that you see some companies getting into or could get into? Yeah, I think one of the pitfalls, it's it's kind of universal beyond de novo, um, but it can really come out. Um, I've I've gotten stuck myself in this like analysis paralysis mindset of like, oh my gosh, I've got to have a perfect thing the first time and no errors, no pushback, no questions. 
and everything's going to go perfectly. And, you know, that's just not reality. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, there's going to be something, right. You're going to, you know, miss a comma somewhere or something. Right. Like, and so like, it, but at the end of the day, going through the process, you know, it's, it's about saying, all right, this is everything that we've thought of. This is everything we've anticipated. We're really confident in this. And maybe there's some questions, you know, maybe we utilize the pre-submission pathway to re- try to get some, you know, ideas, but we're going to go with, this is version one, and we're going to try to get that out there. We know there's opportunities for like a version two product in the future. You know, hey, maybe our version two product, which is more perfect, if you will, than the de novo that we're submitting. Now our V1 is the predicate for our V2 because we've, you know, it's pretty similar. We're just adding a new feature or something, you know. So, so this idea of getting locked into, it's got to be perfect. It's got to have everything in it versus like you were describing, having that risk-based approach of like, okay, well, maybe I can break this into stages and get like, this is my first milestone and this is, you know, phase one, tier one or product one. And then we'll go into phase two. You know, we'll let the R&D team continue to innovate and develop, right? And they can make all these new cool things and they can finish that for V2 while we're getting the V1 pushed through. You know, a lot of times the, the desire that I have to want to just launch that perfect product with all the bells and whistles at the first stop, you know, that can really slow down the time to market in that desire to get there. And so sometimes it's better to get something out there that helps and then get the the full benefit out there a little bit later. But it's always a case-by-case basis too. You know, you don't want to compromise on that core technology and those core features that really make it special. Yeah. I like what you're saying. And it's, um, it makes me think of the case for quality. You know, sometimes companies get focused on just pure compliance and forget really, I mean, they're building, they, they should be building a quality device that, um, you know, a certain amount of elegance, a certain amount of, uh, ex, you know, excellence, um, obviously without sacrificing compliance. Um, so yeah, the other thing I'd say is if you could, if we could just shift our mindset a little bit, because I mentioned earlier, if I'm, if I'm first in the market, can I, can I add a few extra features or make, you know, raise the expectations, raise the bar to increase that barrier to entry rather get, getting out of that, that, that marketing mindset, I suppose. I don't know if that's the right, you know, for, sorry for those of you who are marketing, who are listening, but um, getting out of the mindset of just, just blocking my competitors instead thinking, okay, what's the best device I can give right now for the customer and, and to improve their quality of life. I, th- I like what you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a lot of us in this industry, you know, we, we went into it because we want to help people in some way. And so the idea of being able to help some people sooner and get that better tool out there and then make an even better tool the next day when we come back, you know, that's going to keep us coming back and keep us helping others. So I, I think that's really, you know, a great mindset to to shift into looking into that. So, yeah. There's something else you mentioned, and that was the communication with the FDA and kind of in, in speaking with the context of, uh, pitfalls, potential pitfalls that companies could get into. Um, what are some thoughts around there as far as the, uh, so the communication goes with FDA? Um, so one of the things that, that we see is, um, sometimes there's a reluctance to, um, you know, want to provide all the information to the FDA, especially in a pre-submission meeting, because they're like, well, we're still innovating our product. We haven't, you know, reached design freeze yet, but we want some feedback, you know, and we're worried it's going to impact our de novo application if we tell them we're going to do something wow. and then change our mind later, or we don't want to give them information because we don't know what the answer is yet. And so there's a little bit of just trying to understand 
understand what are what are the client's needs there of well what's what's the information you're trying to seek and how much information can you give FDA as background and context so that they will truly be able to give you the meaningful feedback you're looking for, right? If, if you don't give them a sufficient like protocol for testing for your VMB plan, if you haven't gotten there yet, um, you know, and, and why this is an important aspect for the safety and efficacy of the product and why you feel this is a sufficient approach, you know, why you feel this is a valid statistical sampling plan or whatever those aspects are that you're looking to get the feedback on, you want to give them as much background as you can. Not to say that you want to like flood them with information. They're humans too. They're under tight deadlines like we are. Right. <laughs> and, and so you want to make it so that it's an efficient presentation, but you want to have all that key information there. So you get that quality feedback you're looking for versus, you know, the, if there's not enough information there for the FDA to make a decision, they a lot of times will come back and say that and say, look, we just don't understand enough about your device, especially if it's new, to, to offer any feedback at this time. So we'd like to see more about you know, X, Y, and Z before we can answer your question. And so now you got to go through another round, which can add to timelines sometimes unnecessarily. So that's, I, I would say, one of the bigger pitfalls that we've seen, you know, along the way. Yeah, I can see it. It's, it's kind of hard to trust sometimes, especially, you know, when it's a, a government authority, I suppose. I don't know. I, I don't, but I, but I see the, the mindset there. Yeah. You know, but that trust, it's an interesting thing because I've seen with um, quality folks and quality teams that sometimes people don't even trust like the quality team in house. And it almost becomes like a adversarial relationship. <laughs> like I'm worried they're out to get me, you know, and it's like, you know, it, it, don't get me wrong. I've, I've seen occasional quality teams that have a gotcha mentality, but really most of the quality folks I've seen that really do well are inspiring the team to say, look, we're here to help. We're here to work together. And, you know, the quality systems in a lot of ways, if it wasn't written down, it never happened. And so we're just trying to document all the great things that you were doing anyway, so that when somebody comes and knocks on the door and says, well, how do you know this is the greatest product ever? Well, yeah, here's everything that we've got to show you. This is what we thought about. This is why we included these design features. This is how we tested it to make sure it was working. You know, this is how we know we're making it the same way every single time to make sure every customer gets the one that's working as it should, as it was designed. And, you know, all of the great things that, you know, I, I see in companies every day wanting to wanting to, to go and do, it, it's almost like you get to brag about all the great work that everybody else is doing if, you, if, it's, if it's going well. So, you know, shifting into that mindset doesn't happen overnight. It's easy to sit here and say, yeah, this is, this is a great aspirational goal, especially when sometimes quality has to come back and say, you know, there's just not enough data yet. You know, design team, we got to go back and, you know, tweak this or fix that. And that's sometimes the bearer of bad news. It's hard to hear that. But ultimately, that's that's going to protect everybody in the long run and hit, help hit those goals that everyone set out of the project with in the beginning. So it's really just, it's like a it's like a journal article peer review process, right? You've always got like the reviewer one that loves the article, just a champion. They got the reviewer three that's like really poking holes in the argument. But then you're like, oh man, that darn reviewer three. But then you know what? My paper's stronger for it, and now that it's published and I can't change it, I'm kind of glad. You know, a few years later that they made me put that in there. <laughs> yeah, it hurts in the moment, but oh, long term, it's so, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. I had one guy in my career, he told me quality can be, you can, you can look at them as police or you can look at them as a partner and you should look at them as a partner. So especially manufacturing teams, they look, uh, they struggle sometimes with that because they just validated their equipment, but then, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, okay. So if, if we go back to DeNovo for just a minute, let's say we, we know we want to do 
that process. We know we're a novel device and there's no predicate out there. What are some things we need to start start doing early as far as between that decision and the actual submission? What what should we be doing and getting together and getting ready? Yeah, to me, it's it's a very similar process for any submission. You're going to be wanting to, you know, again, get those, get the quality management system in place, get the design history file going, the you know, the user needs, design inputs and outputs, the BNB testing. Um, you're going to want to be looking at what are the special controls that we're going to want to put in place for this, right? How does that map to the intended use? Um, so there's going to be a lot of time and thought into what are those special controls. And so what's the, the testing that we're going to need to do? Um, you know, the de novo package is going to have the obligatory sections like your regulatory history, you know, some background about the device, um, the device description. You know, you're going to want to make sure that when you get to that point where you're now starting to do the labeling and the manuals, and things like that, that, you've got all of those components compiled and ready to go. So, you know, to me, it's just kind of like it's it's the it's the summary and the compilation of everything that goes into the process. So to me, if, if you've got a good, you know, product development process, you know, it's going to lead to getting everything that you need. And so you can kind of start on that de novo packet and just kind of start filling things in as they come in so that it's not as overwhelming. And then you're kind of ready to go, you know, right at the last minute when everyone's excited and it's like, okay, can we turn it in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Is are, are, there, are there any changes or, or maybe differences uh, when it comes to the actual clinical side, um, the actual uh, validation and so forth? So in some cases, the FDA may want to see larger patient populations that um, they may want to see, Larger in terms of numbers and maybe larger in terms of representative groups. Um, you know, maybe there's a, a special subpopulation for um, the particular indication that they want to see a little bit more data on. And so sometimes that can impact things, um, you know, maybe maybe take a little bit longer to complete the trial. Um, so, so we've seen some cases like that. But, you know, in, in terms of clinical, a, a well-designed clinical trial is is really you know, it's, it's going to be required. You know, sometimes with 510Ks, you don't necessarily need that clinical trial. So, you know, that's going to be a, a key difference there depending on the, the risk level. But, you know, a lot of the devices that we've seen as Sonovos come in at a class two. So, you know, they're, they're getting into that risk level where a clinical trial really makes sense, especially with something new um, to, to go yeah. in there with. Okay. Um, and I know we kind of focused on the FDA because, you know, Denovo's kind of specific. What what are some kind of equivalent things? You know, if I have a no- novel device in the U.S., maybe it's a novel device, a global, globally novel device. Um, what are your thoughts there? Do you have any, you know, knowledge to share when it comes to other regulatory spaces? Yeah, I mean, like with um, with the with the CE mark, you know, to me, um, I'm I'm just familiar with devices having to go through the notified body process and to get that CE mark, and so. Again, it's a case-by-case basis, and the notified bodies are going to be reviewing that everything that needs to be in that dossier, if you will, is, okay. is there and is, is complete. And so um, in that case, you know, again, it might be requiring a little bit more um, burden of evidence, just like the FDA wants to see a little bit more burden of evidence. And so you know, I think in that sense, it's you're probably going to be uh, a similar increase you know, in, in terms of the lift that's required there. Yeah. But basically everything you've told me so far though, um, almost feels like 
you know, companies shouldn't be afraid to be innovative, not, not necessarily innovative. You know, I don't think anyone's necessarily afraid of that, but don't be afraid of the, the novo process. Maybe is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if I've got one message that I hope folks walk away with is yeah, don't be afraid of the novo process. It's <laughs> actually, it's a really great tool, you know, and, and the idea is that, you know, you really want to look at, like we we're talking about earlier, what's going to be the best device that we can make for the patients that solves this need, you know, in the clerk, in the clinical workflow, that's going to really improve the patient outcomes. And so how, what's the best way we can leverage our really cool technologies and innovations and bring those to market. So thinking about that first and then saying, okay, is 510K the best strategy? Is DeNovo the best strategy? Is PMA the best strategy? Because, you know, maybe, maybe in order to really help the patient populations, it might be just that higher risk level and, and PMA might be appropriate. Um, but you don't, so you don't want to like water down that innovation just to go an easier regulatory burden pathway, you know, and then lose some of that, that power and that potential opportunity. So to me, I really want to encourage people to think about, you know, what's, what's the reason for being in the first place? Why were we, why did we set out on this journey? And then, okay, how is that going to fit into the regulatory pathways that are out there? And how can we navigate that in the, the most efficient path possible? Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned something about the PMAs that kind of made me curious. I don't know that we covered this necessarily. Suppose we go down the de novo pathway with, you know, a certain amount of risk management activities already completed, but we get to a certain point, we realize the risk profile is actually much higher than we expected. How does that look? And does it revert to a PMA? What, what are the processes there? Yeah, so I've I've kind of seen that go a couple different ways with folks that are innovating in that space. So um, in some cases, you have a choice of like, that's, that's within your control to say, okay, um, to maybe oversimplify this, there's a, a cancer patient population we could help with this. So the cancer patient population puts us in class three almost right away because of how we're helping. Okay. Well, maybe there's a different indication where we can still use our core technology, but it's a lower risk population. And so maybe what we'll do is we'll launch two versions of our product. First one might go the de novo pathway and we can get to market faster and get some revenue and help that population. And then the second one might be the PMA patient pathway for the cancer population. And so we'll kind of have two versions of products. And then obviously there'll be the additional burdens for the testing for the, for that um, second product in the higher risk pathway. Sometimes though, that's not really possible, right? Maybe what you're describing is a case where, okay, you know, we're kind of doing some investigation, we do some discovery and it really is now class three because there's just these additional considerations, you know, that put it into a little bit higher risk category. And so in those cases, people, you know, do have to make a choice of, okay, do we want to pivot and go down the PMA pathway with this particular product, you know, or do we want to maybe see if there's something else that we want to do that would be maybe a different innovation or different application that would be a different regulatory pathway, maybe something different altogether. So those are the kinds of conversations I see folks tending to have, you know, when they go that pathway, if it's like, okay, well, this really is just going to be, you know, one one shift that moves us in that direction. But, you know, there might be some ways in some cases where, you know, you can identify that early on 
and try to do some investigation and, and figure out, is there anything we can do in that case, um, you know, and, and try to recognize that as early as possible. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and when, when you're doing that, uh, do, do the design controls, I guess, I guess I'm curious about when, when you need to have that determination made throughout your design controls process. Is it early? Is it just user needs inputs? Um, you know, maybe when you have the VMV plan put together, any, any uh, recommendations? Yeah. So um, we see a lot of folks doing that kind of regulatory assessment work um, at the very early stages, sometimes oh, even wow. before they've established their quality management system. And so in some senses, you almost can't have that conversation too early. I know everyone feels that their domain, you can't have that conversation too early, but you know, it, we, we used to use a stage gate process at one of the places I worked. And so, you know, having those initial early, really high level conversations with everybody in the room to make sure that it's like, okay, you know, marketing wants to make this claim. Well, that's going to push it into class three, but the core technology, if we make this claim, pushes it into class two, you know, having those conversations up front. Well, we just can't make any money off of this unless we go the class three route. Okay. Well, hey, finance folks, do we have enough runway to get there? You know, for the class yeah. three, do we want to do it? Having those conversations early on, you know, can lead to, um, you know, better outcomes in the long run. <laughs> you know, again, you can't anticipate everything back to the, <laughs> back to the story we were talking about earlier. Right. You're not going to have it all done. But with that risk mindset approach of like, okay, you know, we, we've got some uncertainties here, but we're comfortable with the level of uncertainty and the level of risk we're taking. Yeah, we think it's worth going out and doing, you know, some of that R&D work now. We think it's worth doing a little bit more digging on the regulatory front to make sure we can really confirm this pathway we think is true is going to happen. You know, so having those conversations early can really de-risk it in the long run. Yeah, it sounds like you're mitigating a lot of risk, simply a lot of business risk by treating it like a system. You know, having all these inputs from the different uh, departments, the cross-functional team, even finance and uh, and and marketing. Absolutely, I I love that approach. You know, it's just uh, uh, mitigates your business risk considerably. Sounds like. So yeah, well, I mean, it, it, that's the strength of a good team, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, very cool. How can people find you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, uh, ProximaCRO.com is a great place to start. We've got a lot of information there. Uh, we've got different blog posts and different content and some videos, some little explainer videos that are you know nice, short, and sweet summaries of different things and concepts. So great place to start if you're looking for more information, whether it be about de novos or any of the other <laughs> categories <laughs> and areas that we help with. Um, you know, I'm available on LinkedIn as well. Um, you can find me, Rob McCuspy. There's um, not a lot of McCuspies in the world, apparently. So it should be pretty <laughs> easy to find me. And, uh, you know, you can link to it from my bio page on the Proxima website as well. So those are some good ways to get a hold of me. We'll put we'll put links in the show notes as well so that people can find you and, and reach out directly and get, get a hold of you as well. Um, any last thoughts that you want to leave with the audience to recommendations, suggestions, advice, anything? Yeah, um, I, I think just coming back to what we were talking about earlier, that you know the de novo process can sound scary. There can be maybe some preconceived notions and some scary stereotypes of, oh my gosh, it's impossible to go this pathway. But it really is an opportunity to really showcase and get something new to market and you know kind of set the standard for the industry with this new innovation and really kind of help establish and work with the FDA to make sure that everything in that space is going to be good, you know, of the standard that you would hope as an innovator. 
you yeah. know, that way it, it helps protect the brand of the company and, and, and the idea and the innovation itself, because you wouldn't want to copycat me too having any uh, issues that tarnish tarnish the brand. So, you know, the de novo process is really a great way for folks that are in that innovative space to really, you know, in a way, almost get recognized for being a true innovator and, and really differentiate what they're doing out there. So really want to encourage people to think about why it is they're doing what they're doing and, and pick the best pathway for it. And maybe de novo is it. And maybe there's another pathway too. Awesome. I love that. And, and, uh, I'll, I'll start spreading the word myself. It's not, it's not as scary as maybe it sounds initially. That's, that's great to hear. And, um, I love you breaking it down so simply. Well, I want to especially thank you for being on the podcast and uh, thank our listeners for listening. You all have been listening to the global medical device podcast, uh, powered by Greenlight guru. So if, if you're interested in a medical success platform that is specifically designed and built for medical device professionals, could look over at greenlight.guru, check out the uh, the website and get more information there. Thanks everybody. Let you get back to your day. See you later. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Guru, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.